Hello and welcome to the Health Interpreter Series, an initiative to cover topics to better understand and engage with health policy and enable communities to get better access to health services across rural Australia. Before we start, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we work and live. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Richard, welcome back again. Thanks, Jeremy. As we introduced you in podcast one, you're the CEO of the Rural Doctors Network. So, Richard, I'd like to now look at the state and federal divide in health. There's so much of our wonderful federation where this murky water of who has control of what just is so problematic in delivering a lot of things, and health is no different. And in fact, during COVID, we saw it firsthand and experienced it firsthand. So, I'm really keen to hear from you. First of all, what is the basic divide in health between federal and state? But also then, what's that mean for communities? And what does it mean for the local leaderships in those communities who want to be active in health? Great. Well, thanks very much, Jeremy. And I've been enjoying our chats and preparing for these things. So uh, great to be with you. And I hope it's helpful for people. Okay. So the first thing I've just heard there is the word divide. I mean, isn't this incredible? We've got a system of health and we're talking about the division in the health system. And for me, that's the central part of the problem. So there is a divide. There's different funding streams and all the rest and how the whole process works. But it was quite stark to say when he said that, I thought, far out, that's exactly it, the divide. So I've got some homework to do after this to go back and back to the drawing board and think about what that means and looks like for us. In understanding why you've brought together this podcast and what you're trying to do, I think if I'm right, you're trying to help us work through how local leaders be the mayors, Rotary Club, members of parliament, staff, that type of thing, can dive deep into this thing, this hairy beast called health. Is that that's right? That's what we're trying to do. Okay, so cool. So enable them and equip them so that actually can contribute to some outcomes for their local communities because that's what they want. They want to be empowered. Great. And so okay, so so I do think this topic's very important. Then, like I, I have the chance through my job, not just this one, but in previous work over the last twenty odd years, to be invited into communities and when they're trying to tackle with a health problem, whether it's the system or a workforce issue. And invariably what ends up happening is they get very frustrated because it's so complicated. And I think what we can do here is just unpick this a little bit so that we try to make it simple. It's not simple, but we need to make it simple and maybe that's what we talk our way through here. The place to start is that the way the health system is funded is in two very distinct streams. What I'm probably about to say isn't perfect, but it's, it's a good start. So in essence, the way I talk to people is when you go to see the GP, when you go to your general practitioner, that's in essence called primary health. So the idea of that first entry point into health system, that entry point is paid for by the federal government, so by the national government. When you walk into the hospital in your town, that asset, that infrastructure, the people in that are paid for by the state government. That's the divide you talk about. And the notion of keeping people alive and keeping them out of hospital or keeping them alive is the responsibility of the state. The notion of keeping people healthy is the responsibility under that funding structure of the federal government. So straight away, you can imagine what goes on in how to bring this thing together. And it's very, very difficult. Where the system works the best is where there's a beautiful patchwork brought together and you've got people and system working in unison, obviously, but there are very few examples of where that happens. So can I just ask you, that, I mean, 
I can see that the, the divide there, but it's even greater than that in the sense that so the state they run the hospitals, so it's a state system run directly by the governments. But the federal, their delivery, the primary health, the doctors, the GPs, are not government employees. They are private businesses. So not only do we then have the divide of government areas of responsibility, but also there's a disconnect again from the federal government side because they're one step away from that primary health. Does that play a, a role? It's excellent. I mean, just to hear you explain that, I mean, this shows even I'm in this thing because, you know, that's right, you unpick this thing. I forget that all the time. So that's right. So let's look at a GP in their own practice in the main street of town. More often than not, to really be able to sustain their livelihood, that person has to run their GP practice as a small private business. But they also, either by choice or by necessity and by skill, may also have a contract to be in the local state-based hospital. So what we know now, if you think really about doctors and how they create a viable business, these are the people that we call visiting medical officers. So they run the GP practice and they run up the hill to the local hospital. So it's so complicated. So these people then rely also on the state system to be able to stay in their business model. And many of those people also teach in universities. So it's this patchwork of things that builds up a health professional's viability, professional, uh, nous, professional strength, if you like, of all these things that all come through different funding pots. It's very, very difficult. So the system must have changed. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a middle-aged man. You look I, good, though. I, I, look, I look good, yeah, no, good moisturiser. <laughs> um, metro as well. Met, really? yeah. <laughs> I, I was in a country town. We had Dr Potts in Juni. And there was no question of him ever not going up to the hospital and seeing you. But today there seems to be a greater – those days, I mean, I'm talking about the, the early 70s, those days are gone in the sense that that's not automatic, is it? No. So this is a really important part of this whole conversation about the health system and, and understanding and I guess embracing or future thinking what it's going to look like in 10 years. So not that long ago, and they're still alive, these super docs who did one town – for 40 years plus. I've met a couple of doctors and I think a beautiful Dr. Byrne down in the Murrumbidgee region never left the town the same time as their family for 40 years. I mean, what's going on there? But that's what it was, like a vocation. It's just it's the, one of the great doctors, Dr. Graham Dean, who I know up in the sort of in the Hunting New England region, he talks about rural medicine as being the last bastion of medicine. I mean, it's just fantastic. I mean, get him on this thing. It's just wonderful to hear. But without criticising the people of today, that's what we want, different things. We don't want to be getting phone calls at 1am, that sort of stuff. So, And whether you're a doctor or a nurse or an allied health worker or the administrator, we're looking for different things in life and then we've got different options now. So it's the towns that really struggle to get their head around not what I had but what I'm going to need to create for my community in the next five to 15 years are the ones that really struggle so in this that, conversation. So people are wanting and, – and this is not just in health. I mean this is across the board, every business – People want work-life balance. And yep. so I guess, as you said, the bastions were the ones that ever did that. They actually just gave and all. And should be celebrated and for celebrated that. And celebrated for that. Yep. But the change is actually a societal change across the board. Yep. And we shouldn't be surprised to see that doctors are no different. And it's uh, or, or nurses that's or, right. so or that, allied health. Yeah, that's yeah, right. So, so it's a whole workforce issue now. It's around. And the other thing I like to talk a bit about is the notion that everybody can be a rural health professional. So- I call myself a rural health professional, but I've not worked clinically ever. I'm not clinically trained. I've spent the majority of my life in the city, but actually I've made a choice to commit to supporting rural communities. 
and the idea that we can meander through a life. I mean, my old man had two jobs, I think, if memory serves me correct. We're all having, what is it, seven to ten or something. It's okay. Let people meander through life. What we're looking for is lifelong commitment to rural. So whether someone's working full-time for five years in a town and they head off somewhere else, but they might do outreach services. Like outreach isn't a dirty word. You know, they come in and support, fly in, fly out, all this sort of stuff. There's just this multitude of opportunities now. What we look for is the commitment to rural through the journey of a career means that we can find great solutions for communities. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's a really important part of that. And that may be working across these divides of state and federal as well. But um, one of the big issues that's coming up at the moment, obviously, is this whole notion of single employer, which I believe you're pretty keen to talk about at some point. But there, there's a lot in so, that. So we will do a deep dive in that and we'll do a special podcast. But you've mentioned it, so let's quickly just talk about it in a high-level part. This is the change that's happening where we're seeing the system trying to break down those barriers. And my understanding is the single employer model that people talk about is actually the state starting to get involved in that primary care, which used to be the bastion of federal government. I think that's right. I mean, we're going to get people who understand that and some of the examples a lot better than me. But what I think here is important is to understand why the notion of single employment sounds important. If you're the small business owner running a GP practice or the physio or whatever it is in a small town, you've still got in single employment. So it's one of the things I can't get my head around this thing, oh, so we're championing single employment. It exists already. I think what really is happening here is what's the problem that's trying to be solved. And a lot of this at the moment relates to things like people being able to have continuity of their employment security, entitlements and the rest, because when you navigate these different systems, the state and federal system, often you've got to leave behind your entitlements. And that causes, that's a big issue. Or you've got to be accredited to go to different places. And so it's just, it's ugly. Like it's hard. It's a slog. And I think what we're trying to solve here is a way to make the professional journey easier for people. So hopefully we can see where the state and federal areas are. And of course they fund that. They've got money to fund those things. But what we're talking about in this series is sort of enabling local governments to get involved. So I guess for you, Where do you see the possibility for local government realising that they actually don't have any funding here Mm. to do this? So what's their involvement? What can their involvement be in this complex world of of federal state health delivery? Yeah, so this is interesting because I I think that local government actually has a huge opportunity here, but I often hear – I'm not an expert in local government, so I understand there's sort of boundaries and all the rest. And the funding issue, you can't run away from that. So I always try to think about, well, how do you turn it around? Where are the strengths? What are the opportunities here for local government? And I keep coming back to, I think you've heard me speak before about it, where we talk about actually they own this thing. <laughs> they own It's the people in the community that want better health. And so how do we turn around the system to support those local communities? We're still working together, but actually have it accountable back to the local community. And I think that's the power of local government because they're the ones that actually have the chance to say, this is what we want. This is what we expect. And if you don't meet that, we're prepared to say we don't need you. And that to be a very brave thing for a mayor to say, or a, you'd imagine, you know, but actually there's not always great behaviours. There's not always great service coming in. So I'm sure there's some pretty clever people out there that would know how to work through a challenge or a negotiation around a minimum level of expectation in service provision, contribution back into the community, um, adding value, social value, not just health value back into a community. I think local governments can do this. It may take some brave decisions at some times, but when you play the long game, 
I think communities and the people in communities want to play the long game because they're there to stay. They're not there for a week. They're there to stay and we've got to be able to help build a viable system in these local communities. And it's not just local government too because you think of the Country Women's Association celebrated 100 years recently. Their whole formation was based upon delivering better health services. So there is community there wanting to be active and engaged. So you have hope that they can actually affect change in their local, local oh, areas? I love where this is going then because this is at the heart of community. So think about the CWA. For those that have had the chance to drive through beautiful Canoundra and you see the old CWA hall there, you walk through the town and there on the plaque at the front of this old CWA hall, it was set up as a baby health clinic. So the CWA, these community infrastructures are so important and obviously CWA is a great organisation, great people, great members, many of them are health professionals and they just deserve to be celebrated. So I love that idea of thinking about how do you aggregate, how do you bring together all that a community's got, how do you bring together all that regions have got to actually create something that can thrive. I think what happens is people forget sometimes when it comes to the health system, it's really easy in your community to complain and actually mostly you've got more than what the next town's got, probably pretty much, or certainly other countries have got. So what we've got to remember is at any given point in time, an organisation like ours, a Rural Doctors Network, we've got 350 vacancies for GPs on any given day on our website. So what are you going to do as a local community to create a shift and a change? How do you set yourself up to actually attract people to you? And so part of it, the ones that are very successful are the ones that have plans, that they have strategies, not just chase and offer a new car to the doctor, but actually think, how do I build something here that attracts, you know, a swarm comes in? So that's where the notion of team-based care is very important. Our health professionals today actually are looking to come and thrive in a group of people, not be the super doc on their own. And so you, you can build these things. What is it? Build it and they'll come. And that's a really important part of these stories. So CWA is very important. I mean, I've also had many meetings with New South Wales Farmers as an example. I mean, what an extraordinary group of organisation with... Well, actually, one of their pillars uh, is health, isn't yeah, it? One, of their, one, one yeah, of their pillars. Yeah, I've been yeah. very impressed with the way that they're planning and strategising around their contribution and how their membership's thinking about how to create and sustain a viable rural Australia. So we do have people, we have organisations, we've got people that are trying their best to bring things together. And that's where I think I see where it really works well is you leverage not just what you've got locally, but the network to the sub-region, the region, and then to the state level as well. And some, in some cases, federally. If you can get that in sync, it's a really good thing. Another part of this story too, if you like, is, a, is to think a bit about what else is out there. So I think about the charities, like we've talked about state and federal. Don't forget people are donating money to this thing all the time as well. So I often feel that we just look at you know, federal and state funding. Across the country, there's millions and mil hundreds of millions of dollars being donated to charities or the like to actually bring health services to towns. On any given day, I'll tell you whether that's a good or bad thing, but I mean, the reality is that's also part of the system. So I think... Where we've seen a lot of successes, Artie, in the last few years is to try to come to that first conversation where there's a problem and ask the question, is there enough money? Yep. Is there enough money in this system? Because at the end of the day, the federal government, the state government, you can keep knocking on the door, but everything's tight. So actually looking at what you have and how to skin that cat a bit differently is actually probably the first place to start. Because if we can help communities, and this is what we think part of our role is, is help bring together, broker the, the notion of have we got what we need? Can we make more of what we've got? Are we wasting things? 
Once you solve that, it makes when you do knock on the door, it's a much more compelling case to support you if you've been able to demonstrate you've done the deep hard look at yourself. So, Richard, I think people would find it very hard to believe that there's enough money in the system because all we hear is you know, we need more money for this, more money for that. There seems to be a bit of a disconnect or can you convince me that there is enough money in the system? Can you give me an example where This is where great. You see so that? this is where you're going to hang me up, aren't you? Yeah, That's fantastic. Exactly. I'm just going to hold you, hold <laughs> you to this. Let's rewind for yeah, three minutes. This is where you're going to be quoted for the next 10 years. <laughs> you know. Brand did not say there's enough money in the system. <laughs> yeah. We come from the notion of thinking, can we find the money in the system? How does that sound? But there's great examples of this because one of the things that happened during uh, the back end of drought and then into the fires of Christmas 2020 was mental health was a huge issue, obviously, and still some of the implications of this still continue today, obviously, with COVID and the rest. But around that time, one of the things that we found, so the back of drought, into fires and then COVID, as an example, was the well-being and mental health, the capability, if you like, of health, rural health professionals. So this is slightly different to community mental health, but, you know, the well-being of our health professionals. And everyone was racing around, scrambling, trying to work out, well, we've got to do this, and people crying out for money. You know, how do we support our health professionals? obviously, which we would encourage and support. But one of the things we realised in the middle of this is actually just hold on, just hold, hold everyone, cool your jets a bit. And we ended up ringing around and we found about 10 different small programs that were already funded or were fundraising for themselves to support the wellbeing of health professionals. Black Dog and the rest, Beyond Blue, all these things, all had, all had pieces of their work. And so one of the things that I'm probably almost pleased, I can say proud about in the work that we were able to be involved in during that time was actually bringing those organisations together and bundling up what we all had, not trying to create new, accepting what we had. And it was fantastic and it had, it had an impact. So sometimes we just got to look at things a bit differently and when we're all, all moving so fast, we've all got responsibilities to masters, all the sort of stuff, it's really easy to go to what or how am I going to fix something? But the ability just to step back and sort of lead through some of this and look at what is there is really important. So I think that's more about what I'm speaking about is, particularly as a community leader, just that ability to step back and go, right, now I've got all these things lined up. If I've got, a, if I've got 10% more out of all of that, we might be pretty good. Okay, so it's, it's about connecting and ensuring that you understand what is available already yeah. and getting access to that and, and navigating bring, and, your way. And bringing them to the table because yeah. remember not all of these people live in your town. And so, you know, I still believe we, we want people to be working and living in towns, but it's not always going to be that way. So the person or the provider that's not, they're still part of your fabric of your, your service model. You don't want to disregard that. That's the bit about having setting expectations. You want them there regularly. Demand that their CEO is in your town regularly and have them at the table, eyeball them, about how you want them to participate in this aggregated approach. Now, another group I want to talk about and where they sit in the federal-state divide is AMSs, Aboriginal Medical Services. There's lots of them in regional Australia. Are they considered a primary access part of the, of the funding or how does mm. that work? Great. So, I mean, the Aboriginal community controlled sector is a vital part of the Australian network and probably often under-regarded, under-celebrated and deserves to be given great airtime. Now, I'm a non-Indigenous Australian, so it's very important here that I say I'm just speaking on with my perspective and I've got a huge amount to learn, but I've also been gifted friendship and patience from my Aboriginal Australian friends who are helping me work my way through some of the things that I'm dealing with. So I hope it's okay for me to say some things here and I'm doing it with great respect, but that this needs to be explored more with them as well. 
My understanding of this is that the Aboriginal community controlled sector, which sometimes plays out as organisations calling themselves Aboriginal medical services, are a vital piece of the puzzle for our nation's prosperity moving forward. The notion of uh, nothing about us without us it has to be front and centre. We've got a federal government system or program called Closing the Gap. You know, as a non-Indigenous Australian, before I started working in this game, that, that's okay, makes sense. We're, we're trying to work out how to close the gap. But one of my great learnings has been, why are we saying closing the gap? Why, aren't we, why, haven't, we, why haven't we closed the gap? If a person who was born, an Aboriginal Australian who was born the same year I was born, because I was born where I was born and who I was born with and into, I will live 10 years longer than that person. I mean, it's outrageous. How do we accept this? So I think it's time for non-Indigenous Australia to really deeply understand what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians need and that most of our communities will have Aboriginal representation, Aboriginal people, Aboriginal history within their communities. And if you look at the dire state of the health of Aboriginal Australians, it's unacceptable not to go there to at least understand it. And your question around how it's funded and all the rest, yes, my understanding is that there's a different style of funding that comes in. I think it's sort of called more block funding, you know, there's a, but that's related to the notion of health as defined by Aboriginal Australians. It's a superb model. It may not mean it work for everybody, doesn't work all the time, but th that notion is very important. And so often in the job I'm in, and I've done it myself, I say that one, a little bit embarrassed, but two, to acknowledge the fact that we're all learning and need to get better. So often in health conversations, Aboriginal Australians are not represented. Aboriginal community-controlled organisations are left off meeting invitations. And more often than not, when they are brought into the room, they're not listened to. And yes, I think if you're thinking about state and federal divide, as leaders of community, this is a very important part of that conversation. Well, I think we'll do a special podcast on that because I think it's worthwhile. Definitely. Uh, you know, finding out more. So, Richard, again, I'd like to end with a positive. What are you seeing between the actions of the federal government and state government on trying to break down those barriers and try and see uh, better results? Because you've seen some horrific situations where it doesn't work. It actually has huge implications. Mm. Okay, so what I might do here, if it's okay, and I'll try and make it sharp, is I'll give two examples. First of all, I'm going to talk about what I have seen in New South Wales in the last couple of years. I think two people particularly need to be called out in the politics of New South Wales. The first of all was the former Minister for Regional Health, Bronnie Taylor, and the current Minister for Health, Ryan Park, from very different political parties up against each other in an election uh, and obviously a change of government. To be honest, it motivated me and inspired me as a health professional to watch these two people who are on different sides of the fence who were about to go into battle to win an election, the respect they showed to each other, the courtesy they showed in public meetings and in private meetings that I was privileged to sit in, it, it actually, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a widget, I'm, I'm in the system, I'm punching it out, but I left, every time I saw them speak and they were together, I left better and I left stronger. And so it's not just federal and state, it's actually the bipartisan nature of what we're dealing with. So I just thought that would be worth calling out. might sound like a big suck-up, maybe it is, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I mean it quite genuinely. Like I've been ready to run through a brick wall because the leaders you can believe in, they, they deserve huge credit, number one. Number two is this state-federal thing and where things are happening and things are good. So about four years ago, 
I think it was Minister Coulton and or Minister Gillespie at the time, in part working with the New South Wales government, who at the time was Minister Hazard, called a meeting and I think it was called the Bipartisan Health Meeting. And I, I was invited to go, I think we are in Wagga Wagga for the first time and then Dubbo for the second one. And my understanding is that meeting has never happened anywhere, not just in New South Wales but nationally. So you had the ministers, state and federal ministers, with about 20 people hanging on like me, just sort of trying to look good, um, <laughs> sitting in the room with them for the day and sharing stories, not just on programs and trying to big note each other, but trying to work through, okay, how does this work? So, And so I remember there was a whiteboard in one of the days, okay, so we've just announced this up here. Now, where does that go next? Well, it goes to the minister's office, then it goes this, it goes here. Now it pops out here. And then the New South Wales government did the same. They ended up in, <laughs> the same intent ended up miles and miles apart. And so all of us in the room were going, oh, wow. And so I was in the room. It was fantastic to watch it. Oh, how do we bring that together? And so these things are possible, but it's, but you've got to go one by one by one. I think the idea of it's, it's just so big, it's so so hard, just to go one by one by one, and then we're seeing it. So at the moment in rural New South Wales, there's this incredible project called Collaborative uh, Commissioning being run in Western New South Wales, the one I'm involved in, around diabetes care. It's one of the first times, and we're talking about millions of dollars in diabetes care and prevention that's necessary in Western New South Wales, but they've actually worked out how to bring the two together, the two pots. So this notion of one health system and, you know, is that ever going to happen, bring the GPs and the primary health care system and the hospital system together? Who knows? And is, is it a good idea? I don't know. But if you go topic by topic or health issue by health issue, we're seeing it live right now and we're getting results. So there are great things to talk about, but I think what I've learned is that it needs to be very deliberate, it needs to be very targeted, and there's a huge risk of these things blamonging and just becoming stuck in the mud. So having a real um, mindset of finish things, get outcome, is really important. Well, fantastic. Richard, as always, you've uh, enabled us to do at least two more podcasts on things that you've <laughs> actually done. But no, that's great. That's fantastic. It's uh, As I said, it's one of those areas, those barriers, where you're trying to find who do I talk to? How do I talk to? So, you've... Well, can I just say one more thing before we finish? Yeah, I don't think I've got a choice. <laughs> yeah, I'm in now. Yeah. Buckle up. Okay, so it's really important with this that this is where these innovation ideas come in. So you go piece by piece by piece. And so you need to sit and you ring fence things and work them through. I'll give you an example. Like we've been in contact and trying to build relationships with friends overseas to learn what they're up to. And we're trying to bring some of their best examples back to us. But we've actually got them ringing us as well. So we've got a, a group coming from Canada to come and listen and learn about what's happening in rural New South Wales at the moment. So, so we've got things. You know, you've got to celebrate them, but you've got to protect them and look after them as well. And I do think when the big blamange happens with the, looking at the whole of the system, it's nearly it's too daunting. So biting off bits and pieces and being very focused, putting good business practices in place around those things really does help. And again, community at the heart of what we're doing. Definitely. Fantastic. Richard, as always. Thank you. Pleasure. This podcast is produced by Health Pro Media and funded by the New South Wales Government. You can find out more information or let us know about topics you would like to cover by going to our website at communitysolutionshub.com. In the meantime, please like, follow and share. Until next time, thanks for listening. The information provided in this podcast is of a general educational nature only. The views expressed are that of the presenters and not of the New South Wales Government or the New South Wales Rural Doctors Network.